Grab your Bibles with me, if you will. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. And I want to read several verses, so stay with me. We're going to read about uh, 11 verses, beginning in verse 41. Or if you're there, say amen. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, I thank you for your presence that we have felt here today. I believe that you want to speak a word into our lives. It will challenge us. It will open our eyes and our heart to hear and to see what you have us today. Be with us. Do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Most every parent I know, when their child is a baby, believes that their kid is a genius. They're, they're in there watching baby Einstein, and they've already got it figured out. And you know, we start in with, a, my child walked at 11 months. My child walked at 9 months. My child was, was playing baseball at 8 months old. I don't know what's wrong with you all. Um, my kid talked at 6 months. He was saying complete sentences at 7 months. And, and uh, we, we, my kid read, is reading three grade levels uh, above where he's supposed to be. And, and my kid has never made a B. And we put bumper stickers on the back of our car that say, uh, my kid is an honor student. We ought to be proud of our kids, but um, they're not all geniuses, in case you haven't realized that yet. (laughs) Let's put it into perspective. Let me tell you about some real baby geniuses. Would you like to hear about a few? Uh, First, there was Jean-Louis Cardiac. He was born in France in the 18th century. He was known as the Wonder Child. At three months old, Sean could recite the alphabet. At four years old, he could not only read Latin, but translated it into English and French. By six, he read Greek and Hebrew and was proficient in arithmetic, history, geography, and genealogies. Then there was the very famous, you've heard his name, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, maybe the most uh, uh, prestigious of all child prodigies. 
uh, prodigies. Uh, Mozart was born in Austria. At, at four, he began music, music lessons with his violinist father. At five, he composed minuets. At six, he was a virtuoso on the violin and the harpsichord and toured with his older sister, creating a sensation in European courts with his phenomenal phenomenal ability to sight-read music and to improvise. He wrote his first symphony at age 8. At 11, he was forced to compose in solitary confinement for the suspicious Archbishop of Salzburg. He passed the test and was offered the salary job of city concertmaster. At 12, he wrote two operas and a mass, and his reputation grew over the years. His opera's Concerts, symphonies were the, of the highest order. Today he's still regarded as one of the world's supreme geniuses. Then in the beginning of the 20th century, Truman Henry Safford, son of a Vermont farmer, showed his, uh, his ability at age three when his parents amused themselves with his calculating powers. He did math really well. At seven, he studied algebra and, geom- algebra and geometry. At nine, he constructed and published an almanac. At ten, he originated a new rule for obtaining moon risings and settings in one quarter of the time of previous methods. At age ten, he was asked to square the number, uh, which is to multiply a number by itself. This is the number that he squared in less than a minute. The answer has 40 numbers in it. I can't even say them all. He graduated from Harvard, Harvard at the age of 18. Want to take that bumper sticker off your car yet? <laughs> Michael Gross was born in 1954, the son of a credit union man- manager in Lansing, Michigan. He astounded his mother by reading aloud to her without any previous instruction. His IQ is so high it can't be measured. He was obviously under-challenged at school because at age four, on his first day of kindergarten, he saw a classmate coloring an apple blue, and he remarked with interest, that's the kind of approach that Picasso would use. At 10, he moved directly from the fifth grade to Michigan State University and became the youngest college freshman in nearly a century. He graduated with a Ph.D. from Yale before he was 20. Then, he, then many believe the most brilliant child prodigy, prodigy alive today is Kim Ung Yong, born in 1962 in Korea. He was talking at five months, writing at seven months. His IQ is estimated higher than any other. When he was four years old, he was fluent in Korean, English, Japanese, and German, and he was solving intricate calculus problems on Japanese television before his fifth birthday. Child prodigies, geniuses, minds that you just, you think you're a smart guy and then you talk to these kids. And then there was Jesus. They didn't measure Jesus, uh, they didn't measure, measure IQ in the days of Jesus. But what they did do is they went to the temple and people would be talking and talking about scriptures and verses and teaching on different philosophies and, and they would talk and learn and at age 12 Jesus finds himself in the temple where first of all he took care of himself for three days without his parents 
Now that's pretty impressive in and of itself for a 12-year-old to take care of himself in, a, in the middle of a city that he knows no one in for, for three days. And somehow he slept and ate and uh, found himself right in the midst of the wisest teachers of the day. And, and he's teaching and he's talking. And, and, or he's not teaching, they're teaching. He's asking questions, he's answering, he's understanding them. Jesus, um, the thing that made him astounding was that uh, his questions and his answers were always brilliant. He had a way of understanding. He did this throughout his ministry. When asked uh, the question about money, they held up the gold coin and and they said, uh, who do you pay taxes to, to Caesar or to God? And, And the question was designed to trap him. Uh, The Bible tells us that the Pharisees came up with questions to literally trap Jesus. And the idea was this. If he said it belongs to Caesar, then then because of the beliefs of the day and what the coin represented, he was saying that Caesar was God. But if he said it belonged to God, uh, then he was saying that Caesar was not in control and Caesar was not God and therefore the Romans would be upset with him. This question was designed to be a no-win situation for Jesus. But Jesus says, no problem. You can ask me any question you want to. He says, it's very simple. Render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar and unto God which is God's. We owe taxes to Caesar. He's our ruler, but he is not our God. God is our God. He always had the right answer. Uh, At age 12, they realize something incredible about Jesus. They realize he has this incredible uh, perceptive mind. He just got things. Do you remember when your kid did their first trick? Do you remember? He said, mama, or, uh, you know, he would roll over and, and you would gather everybody around and try to convince him to do it. That's what happens here. It's suddenly people are gathered around looking at Jesus. His trick was that he asked great questions and he always had great answers and he understood. Now, uh, I have a nephew. He's six now. He's about to be seven. But a few years ago, he was riding down the road at Christmas in the car with his grandmother. He calls her Gammy. So Peyton's riding down the road, and they're going to buy a Christmas present for a little boy uh, who is in need. And Peyton says, why are we going to buy this present? So Gammy says, Peyton, we're going to go buy a present for a little boy uh, because he doesn't have a mommy and a daddy. And he, no, she said, because he, he needs a present. They said, Peyton said, well, Gammy, why don't you just have his mom and dad tell them all he's got to do is ask and they'll buy him a present. And Gammy said, well, he doesn't have a mommy and daddy to ask, so we're going to get him a present and, and we're going to bring it to him and we're going to give him a really good Christmas. Peyton said, now, Gammy, I want you to think about what you just said. If you are on this earth, you have a mommy and a daddy. You know, Peyton always did understand things at an early age. He just got things. And I'll tell you, it is frustrating arguing with a three-year-old. Especially when you realize that the three-year-old is right and you are wrong. Then you have to go, then you have to pull one out of the bag because I said so. (laughs) Knowing the whole time, he got me again. But Peyton had nothing on Jesus. Jesus just got things. But I love verse 52. Jesus increased or he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and favor with man. 
I find this an amazing and thought-provoking verse here. I was preparing to preach a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Some of you may have been here. And I was talking, and one of the topics that I was talking about was favor. And this verse came to me, which I've preached on many times, and it's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And the idea came to me, this thought, why did Jesus need to increase in favor with God? If Jesus is the Son of God, which how many of you believe Jesus was the Son of God? He's part of the, tr- the Trinity himself. He is God. Why did, he, why did he then need to increase in favor with God or thus favor with himself? And better yet, and, and I remedied that very quickly because I figured this. It doesn't really matter why. If Jesus did it, I ought to do it. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to increase in favor with God, then I need to as well. But then I started asking this question, how do I increase in favor with God? Favor is a, uh, an amazing thing. It's been defined as overgenerous preferential treatment. I like favor. I don't know if you've ever had favor in any place before, but it's kind of a cool thing. And Jesus had over-generous, preferential treatment with God. I like the sound of that. I, I want favor with man, but I would much rather have favor with God. Three things about this favor that Jesus had, uh, and, and then we'll close today. Here it is. Jesus got a measure of favor at birth. In verse 39 and 40 of Luke chapter 2, uh, just before the verses I read to you, Jesus, has, they've brought him into the temple. Uh, they've gone through all the things. He's been circumcised. He's been named. He's been prayed over. He's been blessed. All these things. And here's what he says. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Very similar verse to verse 52. But I want you to note something slightly different. Verse 52 said, he increased in favor with God. Verse 40 says, and the favor of God was upon him. Because from birth, Jesus had a measure of favor. Um, I have always had a measure of favor on my life just simply because of who my father is. When I, even as a kid, when I walked around this church, I got preferential treatment just because my dad was the pastor. And people, some people liked that. Some people didn't like that. Some people thought it was fair. Some people thought it was unfair. I didn't know any different. It's just the way I was raised. My parents were the pastors. My father was the guy up there preaching. And therefore, I got preferential treatment. There was a time in my life when I had preferential treatment and didn't even know there was another way. It took me a while to realize I was being treated differently. One of the times when I began to realize there is a difference, I was 11 years old, I was playing Little League Baseball, and we got a new coach that season, and the coach's son was going to be the star of the team. 
He was going to pitch. The problem was the kid could barely get it from the pitcher's mound to home plate. And they might as well have been lobbing it in underhand to people. When he pitched, we gave up so many runs. It was just, it was maddening. And when he wasn't pitching and I wasn't pitching, uh, I played shortstop and he played third base. The problem was, number one, the kid couldn't field the ball if you put it in his glove. So everything that went to him, I had to play my position and cover his position for us to win any games. And if by chance he somehow caught a ball, he couldn't get it across the diamond. It would take like four hops to get there. Boom, 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 boom. Now, I understand if you're in T-ball, that would be okay. But man, the kid was 12 years old. He should have been able to get the ball there. This was incredibly frustrating to me because this kid was always uh, the starting pitcher until he Gave up the maximum amount of runs and had to come out. And, and if he wasn't, he was starting at third base. He had no business. The kid, did, man, he needed to be carrying the water bottles. He was that bad. But his daddy was the coach. This frustrated me as a kid. It, it really did. It, it, it bothered me. But as I grew up, I realized that I'm totally okay with it. Uh, in, in softball, there's a phrase, and maybe in baseball too, but it's called daddy ball. And that's the term for letting your kid play the best positions, even though he, there's better kids on the team. And uh, I got a completely different perspective of this a few years ago. Uh, my first season to coach a team, uh, my team won the, the division, and I became the all-star coach. And uh, this was a really cool thing. I got to coach the all-star team, and we went to district, and we went to state, and it was really cool. Uh, but the deal was, my daughter, she was six years old, she had no business on the all-star team. She couldn't throw the ball 20 feet. And, uh, I mean, she just, we couldn't decide at that time if she was left-handed or right-handed, so she had both gloves in her back, and she would randomly just pull one out and go play. Uh, she was terrible. I mean, she was, she's great now, she was terrible then, okay? Uh, but here was the deal. I said, I'm not coaching the team if my daughter's not playing. I'm just not going to do it. I mean, I love coaching softball. This is fun. But if my daughter is not on the team, I'm not coaching. You're going to have to find another coach. So automatically, my daughter made the team. She did not make the team on her merits, on her skills. She made them based on my merits. What am I driving to? Jesus had a measure of favor simply because of who his daddy was. His dad was the son of God. And because of that, the favor of God was upon him. What does that have to do with me and you? The Bible says, Jesus actually said, that we are to be born again. And later on, Paul said that he, we would be, he, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is he saying? That when we are born again, when we give our life to Jesus, when we, when we receive salvation, and, and suddenly Jesus becomes not only our God, but our Father, immediately at the moment of salvation, you receive the same measure of favor that Jesus did, not on your own merits, but because of who your Father is. Say, Pastor Renan, I don't have any favor. Have you given your life to Jesus? Yes. Then you have it. You just may not know it. I had favor my whole life, and it took me a while to figure out how, that I had favor on me. You have favor on your life. At some point, you just got to begin walking in it. You got to begin looking for it and expecting it. 
You have favor on your life just because of who your daddy is. The second thing about this was Jesus had been dedicated to the Lord. One of the great things that we get to do here in this, uh, as pastors is we get to dedicate our children to the Lord and we pray over them and bless them. And, as, and, and that was one of the things that released the favor of God onto the life of Jesus. We have baby dedications coming up March the 23rd. Make sure you get your kids signed up if they've never been dedicated. You need to have them dedicated to the Lord because it's an impartation of blessing and health and favor. Second thing, second thing about this, Jesus increased as he grew. The, the word there in the Greek means to cut one's way forward. To do something to force growth and increase in your life. That's what Jesus did. Jesus increased in favor with God as he forced his way and he grew and he worked on things. He did some things to increase. He wasn't satisfied with the measure that he was given at birth. Uh, he had a tough job ahead. And he would need all the favor he could get his hands on with. Thank God for the measure of favor that we all receive at salvation. But you need an increase of favor to complete the will of God in your life. And if Jesus increased, so can you. Here's a few ways that Jesus did that. Number one, he did it through diligence. Diligence. What do I mean by that? Diligence is careful and persistent work or effort. Jesus studied and he worked hard, and he showed himself approved. Notice what he's doing in the temple. He is learning and asking questions. Uh, he, he, is, he is trying to increase. He's trying to get knowledge and then put it into action. He did what the law of God instructed him to. Have you been diligent to, first of all, learn the word and the laws of God, and secondly, to apply them to your life? If you want an increase in favor, this is part of the process. Have you given it careful and persistent work or effort? Secondly thing is that Jesus was obedient. He was obedient to those in authority. Uh, he was obedient to, the, to his parents. Notice verse 51 said that he was submissive in all things. Jesus was obedient to everyone that was in authority over his life. His parents uh, and as well as God. He was obedient. Obedience causes favor to increase in your life. Obedience. Thirdly is recognition. First of all, he recognized his own identity. He said to his mother, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He recognized. I wonder how long it took Jesus to realize that he was the son of God. Think about it. Was he two? Was he three? Was he seven? Was he ten? At what point did he realize he was the Son of God? At some point, he recognized who he was in God. He was the Son of God. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know that greater works than these shall you do? Do you know that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus? In Romans chapter 8, do you know that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Do you know that you were created in His own image? Do you know who you are in Christ. He recognized his mission. He was here with a purpose. He was here on a mission. Uh, he, he, he recognized this. He was in the temple because that's who he was and that was his mission. Remember, 
Mary said, uh, in John, she said, uh, they were at the wedding and they ran out of wine. She said, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he said, woman, why are you coming to me? It's not yet my time. He knew he had a mission, he had a purpose, but it wasn't his time. But he did whatever she asked anyway. She needed a miracle. He came through with a miracle. You need favor for your mission. You need favor to do the job that God has called you to do. Jesus needed a donkey, so he said to his disciples, go down there, there's going to be one tied up. Bring it to me. If anybody asks, you say, my master has need of it. Now, i got to tell you, this is stealing. (laughs) If this were to happen in Texas in 2014, somebody's pulling a gun. I mean, I, I mean, you know, we don't all walk around with donkeys today, but imagine if somebody walked up to your car, broke in it, and was trying to steal it, or, or, and they said, my master has need of it. You'd have been like, I don't think so. Kill shot. <laughs> that was just for you, Lindsay. I know you would get that. I mean, think about it. There's no way this, you know, like, oh, no, I don't think so. And you'd be calling 911 and get out of my car and over my dead body and everything else. But Jesus needed a donkey and favor got him one. My master has need of it. Well, my God, take it to him. Somebody came and said, I need your car. My master has need of it. Would you grab the keys and say, here, let me show you how to start it. Here's the navigation system. Type in your address. Go wherever you want to. Let me fill it up with gas for you. No. But they did. Why? Favor. Favor for the mission. Favor to do the job. And then was responsibility. Um, What's what's interesting at this story is Jesus is 12 years old. And and this is his last trip to the temple uh, to celebrate the Passover feast as a boy. Men were required to go to, to Jerusalem three times a year. They didn't always make it because of money and the way their, their, their economy worked and their farms worked. But if they, they had to go at least once, and they all mostly chose the Passover feast. So all men were required to go. So Jesus was going nearly every year of his life as a boy. He went with his father. Um, but at 13, something different happened. At age 13, under Jewish law, a boy becomes a man. Uh, you may have heard now uh, Jewish people have a tradition called, they celebrate bar mitzvah. You ever heard of that? That's at 13 years old, a boy becomes a man on his 13th birthday. He now is accepting responsibility for his, his own life, specifically in the areas as it pertains to God's law. Before 13... He could point to his parents and say, they didn't teach me right. I didn't do the right thing because it's their fault. It's my sister's fault. It's my brother's fault. It's my cousin's fault. It's that guy's fault. They could point other places, but at 13, no more. They had to accept responsibility for their own life. I don't know how your kids are, but my son is in a unique phase of his life. It better be unique is all I can say. Uh, where he is blaming everybody and anybody for things that are clearly his fault. Somebody always was the cause of it. This is driving me nuts. And I'm talking to him. He can't spell responsibility, but we're talking about it a lot. Because I want him to understand taking personal responsibility. Part of becoming a man is taking responsibility for yourself. 
not pointing to my wife or my parents or the economy or the president or my boss or this person or my landlord or that person. I'm I'm not pointing to anyone else. I'm taking responsibility for my own life. If I'm not living for God, it's on no one but me. This is, this is the way Jesus lived. He didn't blame other people. He didn't go to the cross blaming the Jewish leaders. No. He went to the cross saying, not my will but yours be done. He went to the cross knowing that I can stop this in any moment, but I'm not. Jesus didn't live his life pointing and blaming to others. He took responsibility. And as from 13 years old forward, the more responsibility he took for his own life, the more favor that was bestowed upon him. If you're taking responsibility for your own life, are you blaming other people? Are you pointing to this and pointing to that? He took responsibility. Time. First, time just had to pass as Jesus grew. And over the course of time, Jesus got more favor. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, it's similar to this. Um, On on my wedding day, uh, I always tell brides and grooms, uh, especially grooms, to just because this is just something that stuck out to me, somebody told me and it stuck out to me, is to remember the moment when the doors opened and your bride came through the door and everyone in the building was looking at her, but she was only looking at you. And remember that moment because it's that moment when, when you're ready to kill each other that connects you. Uh, I know that never happens in your life. But it connects you back to that love and that emotions and why you did this in the first place. Okay? But I remember being there and I remember sitting there saying our vows. Um, our vows were entirely too wrong, long. Dad convinced me that I should write our own vows. So I did. And they were like a thousand words each. <laughs> and and uh, so they, I don't remember even, even what was in them. I don't even know what I said. I don't know who was at my wedding. I know my uncle was there because his hair caught on fire at my reception. Beyond that, <laughs> honest to goodness, to even remember who was in my wedding, I have to go look at my wedding photos. But I do remember sitting there on the day we were married I remember driving that we got married on a Friday night. I remember getting in the car, leaving the hotel, uh, starving to death because nobody ever brought us any food at our reception, and, and having literally our first dinner together at Taco Bell and Winnie. But we were driving to Galveston to get ready to go on a cruise the next day, and she fell asleep in the car. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know how I could love anyone more than I do right now. (laughs) But you know what? I look up 11 years later, and I look back on that, and I remember, I I think to myself, at that moment, I didn't even know what love was. But 11 years later, I love her more than I could have ever imagined. It just took time to get there. Here's the thing about favor with God. When you get that first, 
that first time you feel the favor of God on your life or you see it, you think, man, this is the greatest thing you could ever get. And you look up and over the course of time, you don't know how it could get any better, but you look back and you realize all the ways that God has helped you and you didn't even realize he was doing it or how. And favor has been all over your life and you didn't even know it. Time. Just took time. And the second thing about time is uh, Jesus had favor at the time he needed it most. I talked to you about the donkey. He needed favor. He needed a little bit of extra favor right at that moment. And right when he needed it, he had it. He, uh, anytime Jesus needed a special moment of favor, he got it. When, when, when he was being baptized and the heavens were being opened, God knew he needed something special in that moment. And so he split the heavens, sent a dove, poured out his Holy Spirit, and he spoke from the sky. When Jesus was going through the temptations... He didn't get favor in the middle of the temptation, but he did get favor as soon as he passed the test. What do you mean, Pastor Brandon? Satan tried to say to him, uh, he took him up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple that was really, really, really high. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off and the angels will surely catch you. Jesus said, no, I can't do that. But the moment he passed all the tests, Matthew tells us that angels came and ministered to him. He didn't get favor in the middle of the temptation, but once he passed it, favor was there waiting on him. Because that leads me to my third point this morning. Jesus didn't use his favor as a means of escape. He could have. He could have used it as a get-out-of-jail-free card, but as James said, uh, James writes to us in chapter 1, he said, Consider it pure joy, my brother, when you face trials of many kind, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must complete its work. There, there is this principle in the Word of God that tells us that God wants, he wants to put favor on our lives, but it is not a means of escaping temptation. He'll help you through temptation. He, he'll never put on you more than you can bear, but the favor is waiting on on the other side it's not a means of escape consider two gardens the first garden we find in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 God makes man forms him in his own image he puts him in this beautiful garden that God created and designed with his own hands he didn't just grow the flowers he made the flowers he didn't grow the tree he formed the tree God says, there's one tree. You can eat anything in here. It's all yours. But I don't want you to eat of this tree. The Bible says in Genesis that the tree was beautiful. But you know what? There were trees everywhere in the garden that were beautiful. It says the fruit was desirable. But there was fruit all over the garden that was desirable. It said that it was good to eat, but there was fruit that was good to eat everywhere. But God said, this tree you can't have. So Eve is walking along and she notices the tree. Now mind you, it's just a tree in the midst of all of these trees. But God had said, no, not this tree. It's mine. And just because I said so, I don't want you to eat of it. serpent comes and he says, uh, Eve, did God really say that you would die? He just doesn't want you to become like him. He just, just doesn't want you to, to, to eat of this because 
you just, you, 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 just you, should, you should be able to eat this tree. It's beautiful. It's good. Look at it. Eve had experienced the favor of God on her life since she was formed. She wasn't born. She was formed from, from uh, the dust of the ground and the, the rib of the man. And every day that she had been there remembered that God walked with them in the cool of the day. They had an, they had an incredible relationship with God. They had favor. They were in charge of everything. But in this moment, it was a temptation and her favor wouldn't help her. God said no. But she said yes. And they got kicked out of the garden. Sin entered man. And you and I face temptations and deal with sin and are in need of a Savior. Because a man and a woman tried to use their favor as a means of escape. Fast forward thousands of years. Jesus finds himself in a garden. A garden called Gethsemane. He's facing the biggest trial of his life. I, he, he's, he's facing a cross. This is not something that is unknown in his world. This is something that is commonplace. Crosses are hanging all through and around, up in the sky. You can't go anywhere in Jerusalem in that day that you don't see crosses and bloody, rotting corpses hanging on them. Jesus knows that this is coming, but more than just the cross, he knows that the whipping post is coming. He knows that the torture is coming. He knows that the, the, the crown of thorns is coming. He knows it's all coming. And he comes to this garden. And he kneels. And as the Bible said, he was praying so hard that drops of blood were coming from his forehead. And he said, Father, be your will let this cup pass from me what was he saying he's saying my humanity does not want to do this Jesus couldn't go to the cross and utilize his supernatural abilities his supernatural godness to make it easier because it would have forfeited, forfeited the whole thing and he wouldn't have died as a man he had to die as both God and man. So he couldn't take the easy way out. Not only did Jesus pray this prayer, but Matthew tells us that he prayed it, and then he went and found his disciples, and he said, why are you sleeping? And he went back and prayed it again. Same prayer. Please let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. And he went back and found his disciples and they were sleeping again. And Jesus went back a third time and prayed the prayer. Father, I, don't, I really don't want to do this. But he went to the cross anyway. John tells us like this, how could I not drink the cup that came from my father? My Father has been with me, and He's given me favor, and He's spoken to me, and He's blessed me, and He's walked with me, and I'm here. How can I not drink this cup and use favor as an escape? He goes to the cross. He's hanging there. He's been beaten. He's been, he's bloody. His flesh is ripped, and he's hanging there, and people are mocking him, and the other people hanging on the crosses beside them are mocking him, and the Roman soldiers are mocking him, and here's what they say. If you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down from the cross. And you know that the temptation had to go through his mind. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Because Jesus had this thing figured out. I have to lay down my favor so that millions and billions of people from now through eternity can first of all have salvation and secondly receive favor as a son of God. But if I take my favor up now, it'll forfeit all of it for you and me. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus understood that if he had thrown himself down from the cross, it wouldn't have saved anyone. But by laying down his favor, it gave opportunity for resurrection to happen and salvation to be released in this world. Here's the point. You have favor in your life, but the mistake is to use favor as a means of escaping the temptations and the struggles and the battles in your life. We want favor. We, we want that over-generous preferential treatment, but there are things that we have to go through in our life that we can't call on the favor. We've got to walk through it like everybody else so that as we go through it, through you, God might save people around you. Pastor Ryan, and I'm going through this and I don't feel favor. And I, I know you're saying I have favor and I don't feel it. Maybe, maybe you're having to lay it down so that someone around you can find salvation. That's what Jesus did. In the New Testament, it says that suffering connects us with our Savior. Laying ourselves down for the sake of others connects us with what Jesus did. Here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. Our pastors and elders are going to come. I'm going to pray for you. Uh, if you need to give your life to Jesus for the very first time today, I'm going to invite you to this altar. He'll save you. He'll pour out favor on your life. If you need an increase in favor, if you, if you need preferential treatment, if you need to feel it, you need to see it, and you're wondering if God is real in your life, let him show you. Come, let us pray with you. Whatever situation you're going through, if you're going through a temptation and, and you need Jesus to help you, he'll help you. Come to these altars. All right? Stand, pastors and elders, come. If you need prayer ministry of any kind, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, if you want to make a fresh start with him, today is your day. If you're praying for people around you, and you want to see them give their life to Jesus, today is your day. Come. Father, I thank you for every person in this room that you've given us favor just because we are sons and daughters of God. Not favor based on our own merits, but favor based on you and who you are. I thank you for it, oh God. Save us. Keep us. Stay us as we walk through uh, difficult challenges in our life. And as we make it through, I pray that favor would be waiting for us. Over generous, preferential treatment from God. I thank you for it in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.